If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Genesis chapter 22. So we've been in this series that we started, you know, back when the world was a totally different place, back in January. And uh, we, we started the series on the book of Genesis, and we're currently like back into it and going through it. And we're still talking about this guy, Abraham, because it turns out he's a pretty big part of the book of Genesis. So in the book of Genesis, so far, what we've seen with this guy, Abraham, is in Genesis 12, Abraham is told by God, you are going to go and you're going to be a blessing to all other people. So the, the atmosphere of the story is this guy is going to be the beginning, sort of the patriarch, the, 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 the first chapter in a long line of people whose job it is to be a blessing to the rest of the world. So we, and we sort of see him kind of sometimes do okay with that kind of idea and sometimes not at all. And today, this is the, the story we're looking at today is one of the, probably one of the more famous stories about Abraham. There's actually a Bob Dylan song about this story uh, called Highway 61 Revisited. I was actually just listening to it yesterday and I was thinking this is weirdly a coincidence that this is out there. So anyway, once Bob Dylan has written a song about you, you are part of a very famous Bible story, I guess. There's a better way for me to say that, but I didn't. Anyway, so uh, Genesis 22, we're, we're going to be looking at this story. So again, one of the things we're continually told about Abraham is that Abraham will be blessed, but then also Abraham will be a blessing to everybody else. That's the backdrop of all of this stuff. But then we get this story that's very upsetting. And I feel like once again, I need to offer a trigger warning because book of Genesis, I feel like there should just be a blanket trigger warning over the whole book. But we're going to be looking at a story and we're going to be talking about a system, a, a world in which child sacrifice is kind of a normal part of it. So if hearing stories and descriptions of child sacrifice is more than you can handle before your second cup of coffee, then go ahead and come back to this later because we're going to have to talk about that because that's what the story is kind of about. So Genesis chapter 22, we're going to jump right into it. It's going to your your dashboard lights are going to flash a little bit. You're going to like there are going to be points along the way where you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. how is this in the Bible? How, how is this a thing that we're just not talking about constantly? Why, why are we just OK with this particular story? So fully recognizing that that's going to happen in our brains as we go, we're going to read the story and then we're going to kind of break it down. All right. So here we go. Genesis 22, beginning in verse one. So then it says, uh, so sometime later, God test. Sorry. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. I love that in the story, God continues to have to like further the explanation of who exactly he's talking about. Take your son, your only son, the one you love, Isaac. You know, like there it's, which by the way, Isaac is not Abraham's only son. Abraham has another son named Ishmael, but I guess for the purpose of the story, we're just going to not pay attention to that part. So anyway, so it says, take your son, your only son, the one you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Then no further dialogue, by the way. There's no like, okay, couple questions about this. There's none of that. The next verse, verse three is, early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to the servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. I love how we will come back to you, right? No. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire, uh, carried the fire and the knife. 
I'm just realizing, like, how do you carry fire? I don't know. Anyway, um, the, the questions I continue to ask as I read this. As two of them went, went on, as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Funny you should ask, Isaac. Then Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac, at which point I think the game is up. I think Isaac's kind of catching on that maybe, maybe things are not what the, the pretense suggested that they were. Uh, so it says, he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Again, not his only son, but I guess we're just pretending like it is. Um, then in verse 13, it says, Abraham looked up and there in the thicket, he saw a ram caught, caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide and to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Okay. So this is an upsetting story, right? I mean, at first, it's, first of all, it's a story about God telling a person to go and kill his son, believing that, I mean, suggesting that this is his only son. Again, not his only son. But, but that's the command. And then he goes through all the motions and all sort of like, I'm sure, the mental trauma of trying to deal with the fact that he's about to do this. And then at the very last minute, like as he has the knife raised, you have the angel of God saying, whoa, okay, 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 hold up, hold up. Never mind. Call it off. Just go go on back home. This is this this is such a mind trip. Like how how do you even what are we even supposed to do with this story? By the way, I was thinking about this yesterday. We read this story. Like I've heard this story preached a thousand times and it's always like look at how great Abraham's faith was. If you found this story in any other religious text, you would point to this story as an example of how barbaric and backwards that religion is, would you not? If you found this story in any other document and there were a group of people today who like lifted up that document and revered it, you would say, I can't believe that people still talk about this story and still talk about this story with some sort of like high regard or some sort of reverence. This is insane, this is barbaric. Why are we, why are we all just accepting this? But because it's in the Bible, we're like, nah, it's good. It's about faith, right? And so we just sort of accept it and we don't really interrogate it in any sort of way. Um, it's a pretty upsetting story though, is it not? And, and in fact, I've heard it preached. I've heard this story preached a bunch. And quite often when I have heard it preached, it's almost in the, always in the context of like, it's a giving sermon. And it's, a, it's about like, Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son. So shouldn't you sacrifice more of your income for this, for our new building campaign or whatever? Um, in fact, I once uh, I once attended a church. It was only it was like one of the only times I even visited that church. But I, I, I attended this church, um, and actually, we, we Caroline and I were there together. And this guy was preaching on this passage, and it was a giving campaign, and it was like they were building a new um, I don't know racquetball court or whatever. And and the guy preaching the sermon read the story, and he actually condemns Abraham. Not because Abraham's about to kill his son. He condemned, Ab the, the preacher condemns Abraham because Abraham takes too long to get to the job. 
So because because in verse three it says early the next morning Abraham gets up, and so the guy's point was like he should have got up right then. He shouldn't have waited till morning. Like the, this guy's only problem with the story is it took Abraham too long to leave the house. So. Anyway, so we, we look at this story, and again, we sort of just accept it at face value. Like, well, I guess this is what it is. We're just supposed to just accept this at face value and ask no questions and assume that this whole thing is just about like, well, look at how great Abraham's faith is. Again, fully ignoring the fact that if this was in any other religious text, we would have lots and lots of problems with this story. So, um, but again... What are, what are we dealing with here? What, like, what exactly is this? How are we supposed to, like, one of the things about going through Genesis is we have to learn how to ask certain types of questions, and we have to begin asking, like, what, what, is, what is this story? And how would this story have been read at, in its original world? How, how would the first people who heard the story, how would they have heard the story told? So here's the thing. In the ancient Near East, each culture has its own set of religious practices and beliefs and rituals. Every culture has its own gods. So, when, in fact, whenever a nation would go to war against another nation, it was thought of in terms of not just like this group of people is going to war with this group. It was this set of gods is going to war against this other set of gods. And so when the two armies would clash, whichever army came out ahead, the belief was, oh, those gods must be more powerful than those gods. So the whole thing is built around like how people view their gods and the whole like all the gods are seen as like trying to posture and be more powerful and more ruthless than all the other gods this is the world of the ancient Near East. this is the world out of which the abraham stories come and the the personality of a nation's gods very much defined the personality of that nation the nation was meant to be seen as an extension of the god's personalities or the, uh, the nation or the tribe or the group of people or whatever. So how you see all of life very much depends on what you believe your gods are like. If you believe that your gods are vicious and cruel and bloodthirsty, then your people will then be vicious and cruel and bloodthirsty. There's, there's a, I, I don't even know who originally coined this phrase, but the, the idea of God created us in God's image and then we return to the favor. And this is what what we see all the time, in in not just in the ancient world, but like all over the place. We see we see people sort of adopting these ideas about what they believe God or the gods are like, and then they begin to interact with the rest of the world as if that was how everyone is supposed to be. So, here, here's why this is important. One of the major gods in the ancient Near East was a god named Molech, and I believe I have a photo. Again, technology is I'm catching up with it. So. This is an artist rendering of the god Molech. And if you can see what's going on in the photo, or in the, in the drawing, you have, you have a group of people, like a group of priests, standing at the base of a pedestal, blowing trumpets, which blowing trumpets was like a way of announcing some sort of triumphal divine event. And then you have someone standing up on the pedestal, placing a baby in the hands of the god Molech, and if you can tell, there is fire burning at the base of where Molech is. So, what's going on here? Molech, again, one of the dominant gods of, it, of this day, was a god who demanded child sacrifice. The belief was that when your child is eight days old, your firstborn child, your firstborn son, the son you love, is eight days old, you would take that son and you would sacrifice that baby in the fire 
in honor of Molech. And so that's what that, uh, the drawing I just showed you is, is supposed to represent. So let's say now, so again, this is, this is how, this, this is one of the dominant forms of religious practice in its day. There are lots and lots of people who worship the god Molech, which means there are lots and lots of people sacrificing their firstborn sons in the fire of Molech. So now let's say, let's set a scenario. Let's, let's paint a picture. Let's say there's a woman and she's living in a village in the ancient Near East. And this woman has always wanted children. And for whatever reason, it's taken her and her husband a really long time to finally have a child. So finally, after years and years of trying, she and her husband have a baby boy. But in this village, everyone worships Molech. And also, not just Molech, but the female equivalent of Molech, which was, uh, which was a goddess named Astarte, or Astarte. Astarte was the goddess of fertility and prosperity. And so the dominant belief in this woman's village, who has been wanting a child for years, the dominant belief in this village is that if you don't keep Molech happy, then a start will not bless your family, and a start will not bless your crops. So if you if you displease Molech, Molech will tell a start to make this person's not just like not provide more children, but also to curse their crops so that they can't feed their family. That's the belief. So if you don't keep Molech happy, then a start will curse your crops. So the woman knows she's fully aware of the ritual of sacrificing your family's firstborn child in the fire. And she knows what, what could happen if she doesn't go through with the sacrifice. However, when she holds her newborn baby, she can't go through with it. It's too much to ask. So she begins to ask lots of questions about, are the gods wrong? Is this really a system that I wanna be a part of? Is, is this really worth it? Do, does the, is this really what's required of us? And she begins asking these questions out loud, which naturally horrify her husband, who is fully, like, fully invested in this religious system. And he is fully devoted to Molech and to start and the whole system. And so the husband has no questions. And the husband is fully willing to go along with whatever is required in order to keep the crops growing. But the woman is saying, but, but surely this can't be. Sure, surely the gods cannot demand this level of sacrifice from us. So the woman spends the first eight days of her son's life pleading with her husband to renounce his faith in Molech and to not go through with this. Please let our son live. But finally, on the eighth day, the husband pulls the infant from his mother's arms and goes and sacrifices the child in the fire of Molech. So there's, this is actually, I didn't make the story up. This actually, the story uh, comes from a book by James Mishner uh, called The Source, which is, it's a great book, but it's very thick. But <laughs> it, it takes a long time to read, but it's, it's fully worth it. But this is one of the stories that you find in the, in the book. And um, in fact, Missioner, I, I read this book like 12 years ago, and I remember like this, it, this, this scene and this image just fully like seared itself into my, my brain. And there's this bit that um, Missioner writes after telling the story. And this is what he writes. He writes, and while other sellers, in the, in the aftermath of the child be, being sacrificed, Mishnah writes, and while others celebrated, she, the woman, the mother, she walked home, slowly homeward, seeing life in a new and painful clarity. With different gods, her husband would have been a different man. So 
this this story is about more than just one person in a village thousands of years ago. This is a story about with different gods, a person would be a different person. We, we would have a different way of interacting with the world around us. So it's out of this culture that I just described that comes this story about a father who's prepared to sacrifice his child to a god. And then that god tells this particular father, don't go through with it. Now this is kind of interesting, right? This is, this is a weird twist on the story, which by the way, like, do you, like I mentioned this a second ago, in verse two, God comes to Abraham and says, sacrifice your son. And in verse three, it says Abraham got up and did it. Or Abraham, the next morning, Abraham like loaded up his donkey to do it. Abraham has no follow-up questions. There are no instructions. There, there's nowhere in, in which it's like, okay, this is going to sound weird, so I'm going to have to explain to you how this works. There's no explanation for any of that. Why not? Because Abraham is a man of his time. Abraham knows exactly how to do this. Abraham is fully aware of how child sacrifice works in the ancient world because Abraham is a person who lives in the world at this time. He's fully aware of how this system already works. The reason he doesn't have any questions is because he knows exactly what to do. So again, at face value, this story to us, thousands of years later, reading it in the 21st century, seems like an insane story about a God who is sadistic and just enjoys playing mind games with people for no reason other than to just like, for people to just like prove themselves to him. But in its day, this story would have been seen as a revolutionary commentary on other systems and other gods. This, would, this story would have, would have been seen as an indictment against the practices outlined in Molech worship. So this God is say, setting Abraham free from the tyranny of the other gods. This God, what happens at the end of this story? All the other stories end in bloodshed. All the other stories end with a child being sacrificed. This story ends with God providing the sacrifice. So uh, later on in the book of Leviticus, chapter uh, 18, in Leviticus 18, um, this, this continues to come up. This is a major issue in its day. And so and so much so that in Leviticus, when it's being outlined, like all the things that the priests are expected to do, one of the things that the priests are very specifically told, do not do this, shows up in uh, chapter 18, verse 21, which is, do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech. For you must not profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. So one of the things that the priests are told, like, listen, there may come times when people feel like their sacrifices need to be, like someone needs to ratchet up the level of sacrifice. There may come a time, because one of the things about a sacrificial system is there is this assumption that whatever I gave last time won't be enough to get me through this time. There is a constant, constant ratcheting up. There, there is a constant like, okay, if I gave... 5% last time, I'm going to have to give 6% this time. And then the next time it's going to have to go up to 7, 8, 9, 10%. Are you with me? So there is an expectation of if I don't continue to give more, then eventually the gods will notice and I will be punished for this. You know? So one of the things that happens as people continue to ratchet up and up and up is the question becomes like, well, like what's the most I could possibly give? And then, well, in other systems, people are giving their firstborn sons. People are sacrificing their kids. So here in Leviticus, it has to be very clearly outlined. Listen, if it comes to that, if somebody shows up and says, I'm going to have to like ration, my crops are not yielding with what I need them to yield. I need to, I need to like continue to like amp the whole thing up. What can I, like, maybe I should, 
maybe I should consider sacrificing my firstborn child. To us, this sounds ludicrous, but in its day, it's like, well, yeah, there are other systems that are doing that and people seem to be doing pretty well. So what do we do? And here, like in the book of Leviticus, the, the reason this is here is so that the priest will know, like, no, don't do that. Like when somebody shows up and tries to make that kind of sacrifice, we don't do that here. This God provides the sacrifice. This God does not demand that level of sacrifice. Again, at the time, this would have been considered a major cultural shift. This is a massive move away from what was, at the time, a fairly common practice. So common that it has to be, even though this group of people does not worship Molech, it has to be said in like the original text of this group of people, don't sacrifice your kids to Molech. Like it's, it's that, it is that pervasive in, in the world of the ancient Near East. So in this situation, the gods represent all sorts of toxic, destructive, painful wounds that we've carried with us. The, the gods represent all the things that we've like piled onto ourselves or other people have piled on top of us to say, if you don't do these things, then God or the gods will be angry with you, will be displeased with you. You will not be accepted. You will not be loved. You will not be good enough to be loved by the gods. There was a, a very famous pastor two days ago, I think, who put, put out a video through his church's website. And the video said, if you vote in this particular way in November, then you are not really a Christian. What's that? Oh, okay, what, what, what that person is doing is that person is saying that there is, there is a sacrifice that the gods are demanding, that his God is demanding. And if you don't provide that type of sacrifice, then you are not loved by this God. He's changing, he, he's changing the rules of the game because in this story, in the Abraham story, we're told God provides the sacrifice. But over and over and over again, for thousands of years, we've been adding to, we, we've been trying to pile new things on top of it. And we've been trying to say, well, if you don't do this, then God doesn't really love you. And what this continues to show, that all the way back to the story of Abraham is, that's not how this works. This God provides the sacrifice. So think of all the toxic, destructive, painful things in the name of religion maybe somebody has piled on top of you and said, if you don't do this, then the gods are going to be angry. Then God will be displeased. Then you will be punished. Then you won't be blessed. You won't be rewarded in whatever way you think that you want to be. And what is that? It's, no, no, no. It, that is a, there's a transactional sort of assumption there. And what the story continues to remind us is like, that's not this, this God that we find in the story of Abraham is a different kind of God. This is not Molech we're talking about. This is the God who provides the sacrifice. Molech has all sorts of demands, but the God that Abraham serves says, I'll provide the sacrifice. So there, in, in fact, um, going back to the Leviticus, which is a sentence I love to say, going back to Leviticus, there, there are several places in the book of Leviticus that outline all the different kinds of very specific sacrifices. In fact, you can get really bogged down. If you've ever tried to read the book of Leviticus, it is dry. It is, if you, maybe at the beginning of the pandemic, you were like, I'm gonna be home. Maybe I'll read the whole Bible before the pandemic is over. And you got to Leviticus and you're like, no, I'm not. I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna watch Tiger King again before I do that. So maybe you got to, to Leviticus and why? Why is Leviticus so difficult to read? Because it's like all these outlines and all these like, like lists of like measurements and very specific levels of sacrifice. And we read this and we think like, how in the world is this useful to anybody? Why is this all written down? Why have we preserved this in any sort of way? 
Well, there are all sorts of specific places that outline all the kinds of specific sacrifices. How much grain is appropriate to sacrifice? How much oil is appropriate to sacrifice? Oh, like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. To us, again, it feels really dry. It feels really arbitrary. And it's very hard to get through. As It's not like a fast read. But at the time, the dominant wisdom, again, the dominant wisdom was if you want the gods to bless you more, then you need to give more. And if the gods aren't blessing you, you need to continue to like ratchet it up and up and up. What is Leviticus showing us though? This is, I mean, because that's how you get to child sacrifice. If you constantly worry that the gods are wanting more and more and more, the natural conclusion is that you have to keep going up and up and up. So what Leviticus is doing when it tells you like give this much and then give this much, what it's doing is it's limiting, it's setting a cap and saying like, listen, what is, what is demanded of you is not like more and more and more. The, the reason the sacrifices are listed the way they are in Leviticus is as a way of saying you don't have to constantly like cut yourself open and you don't have to constantly like demand more and more and more of yourself in order to please the gods. It has to be specifically outlined. Otherwise, people won't know where to stop. So for the people who first heard the story about Abraham and Isaac, the story that you and I read now and think, like, this is insane. This is barbaric. But the first people who heard this story, um, the people who, and the people who were first given the book of Leviticus, this would have been a moment of tremendous liberation. They would not have seen this as, like, goodness gracious, what an insane thing for God to demand of Abraham. They would have read this story and immediately, like, tapped into, like, wait, you're telling me this God provides the sacrifice? This God says don't sacrifice your kid? I imagine some of them may have wept with relief. I, would, I imagine some of them would have just been overwhelmed and said something to the effect of, you, you, well, you mean we don't? We don't have to, to do this? Like we, we, we don't have to participate in the story that can constantly like rips us open and pulls out the things that we love the most, the, the, the thing that constantly just continues to, to, to rip us apart in all sorts of ways. We don't have to do that anymore? You mean this God doesn't constantly demand more and more or else he'll be angry with us? You, you mean we don't have to live with a constant fear that we haven't done enough? Some people need to be set free from their gods. And that's what the story of Abraham, that's what the story of Abraham and Isaac is about. Again, to us, we, we read it and we think, like, how in the world is this in a book that we're supposed to revere? And again, at the time, this is a massive step forward. This is a moment of liberation and freedom. This story, this story would have set so many people free. This story would have, would, would have given people a sense of peace and hope in ways that perhaps they never knew possible before. So, so then, again, for us, as we, as we carry it forward and we begin to ask questions about like our, our own current situation and our own set of gods, perhaps, that we've been trying to serve or please in some sort of way, Maybe there are other people whose approval we desperately seek and it keeps costing us pieces of ourselves and we keep going back and we keep trying so hard to make this person accept us or respect us or like allow us to be involved or like included in ways that we constantly just don't feel like we're a part of something. And we constantly keep trying to like prove ourselves or earn our way into somebody else's approval and it's just not happening. And is that, what is that? That's, that, that is a God that constantly demands more and more sacrifices. And maybe 
the story and other stories like it are a way of trying to set us free from that. I, I used to work in an environment like that where my, my constant fear was I just wasn't fitting in. And turns out I wasn't. But the need to fit in and the, the need to be accepted and the need to be embraced by this group of people, um, it costs a lot of energy and it costs a lot of, a lot of times ourselves as we try and give more and more and more of ourselves to these gods that demand endless amounts of sacrifice. Um, may, maybe we, we have worshipped at the altar of nationalism, patriotism, the, the way sort of we see our citizenship and maybe, maybe we have sort of like this overinflated sense of like we're the best and we, you know, we're the strongest, we're the whatever. Um, and so we've begun to sort of worship at the altar of, um, again, again, like the, the, the country that we live in or the, the place that we live in, our citizenship, while valuable, we, we've, we've begun to sort of see that as like the end all be all, like the thing that most defines us as a people. And, and that can become a God for people. And it can become a God that we like measure other people's devotion to, right? Like, are you singing the national anthem as loudly as I think you should be? Um, what is that? That's, oh, right. You, you're a part of a, of a system that, that is demanding sacrifices. Um, maybe, maybe you grew up or maybe you've inherited some level of prejudice or assumptions about other groups and people and some, some types of language, some types of um, stereotypes. And one of the things that perhaps you've seen as an adult is like, these things aren't really the way that I was told that they were. And you're having a hard time sort of dealing with the dissonance between the things that your parents or your grandparents told you and the things that you've observed with your own eyes. And so one of the things that we're having to deal with is like, we, we have to sort of allow for the possibility that the gods of those assumptions were wrong and that they were demanding parts of ourselves that we shouldn't have ever been willing to, to sacrifice. Um, I remember when we first moved into the building in Roanoke, uh, we, the, I, I, I got an email from, from a person who's a church member who said, I have a friend whose parents just kicked her out of the house because she told them that she was gay. And, um, and I want to bring her to church and I just wanted you to know that she's going to be there and that, that, that pain and that baggage is going to be in the room. And I remember hearing that story and thinking, like, and I guess at one level, not being surprised because that kind of thing happens all the time, but at the same time, really being heartbroken about the fact that that continues to happen, that, that a person can grow up in a home and that when they tell their parents that they're gay, that that can be met with such hostility that the parents can say, you are no longer welcome in this house. Where does that come from? Well, very most of the time when that kind of thing happens it's because the parents have grown up in a religious system or have adopted a religious system that tells them that there's something wrong with their kid and that there is some sort of like dark sinful thing about their kid that they cannot accept and so what ends up happening is the parents have to make a choice between like there's the system there's this god that i'm trying to worship and this god has rejected my child so I can either worship this God by sacrificing my child, if this sounds familiar, 
or I have to reject this part of this God by loving my child. And so they're given this terrible choice. And what this, this set of parents, along with lots of other sets of parents have done, is said, I will sacrifice my child on the altar of a God who does not accept my child, right? How is this any different than sacrificing kids in the fire of Molech. It's the same thing. It's just, we just updated the practices for a more 21st century version of itself. Are you with me? Like th this, this impulse to actually like sacrifice our child to please the gods. We're still doing it. We just call it other things, but we're still doing it. So this God demands sacrifice because this God cannot, in, in the minds of this, these parents, or in the minds of a system that has created parents that do this, this God cannot love my child. Therefore, the child must be sacrificed. What kind of messed up, dark system is that? Um, or maybe you grow, grew up with a God of certainty. And you grew up with a God who said, like, if, if you've ever, if you ever went on a mission trip, um, as I did, and you were ever asked to ask a question to a stranger, and the question goes a little something like this. If you die tomorrow, do you know 100% where you'll go? 100%. Like, so like, that's, what are you saying? What, like, and, and so like, there's, there's, this, there's this language of certainty that we're trying to not just like invite people into, it's, it's a language of certainty that we're like pushing into, into people's lives. And what ends up happening is we get into this idea of like, if you don't have that 100% like deadlocked, like iron grip kind of idea about this whole thing, then you have no faith at all. And that your whole, like your whole paradigm is broken and flawed and wrong. And so what ends up happening again is people end up in churches or systems and they begin asking new questions and they begin like questioning the dogma or the practices or the assumptions and they end up getting called into somebody's office and they end up having like to have, have a talk about like, I hear you've been going through some doubts and I hear you've been struggling. And I think maybe you should like, just talk to me about those doubts and don't talk to other people. And you, there, there begins to sort of be this kind of suspicion and paranoia about the person who's asking the questions. What is that? In that system, there is a God who demands pretense and dogma over honesty and curiosity. So we have these gods that demand certain things. And the things that those gods demand cost us parts of ourselves. Um, and what this story continues to say is, this God provides the sacrifice. The gods that demand things from you and strip parts of you out of you, those aren't the gods that we find in the scriptures. Th those are not the gods represented by Jesus. So uh, in fact, there's a there's a book by David Dark called The Sacredness of Questioning Everything. And in, in this book, he writes this. He says, show me a transcript of the words you've spoken, typed, or texted in the course of a day, an account of your doings, and a record of your transactions, and I will show you your religion. So what we have is we have this assumption that the gods that we serve show us who we are. And Abraham, the story of Abraham is showing us, oh, there are these, there are these gods that demand certain things. And these are, these are gods that represent toxic systems and really dark, messed up, violent, um, corrosive practices. And this God, this story about Abraham comes into that, that world and says, this God provides the sacrifice. You don't have to live inside of this system anymore. I, um, 
a couple of years ago, I, I read a study. There was a study that was done in Seattle. It was a, they, they did a set of focus groups. And the, the focus groups were, they were focused on a, basically to participate in the focus group, the, the, the entry question was, do you have some sort of faith? Do you, how do you identify? And they were trying to identify people who identified themselves as Christians in America, specifically like um, non-Catholic, like evangelical mainline type of Christians. And so that was sort of the entry point of, are, like, do you identify yourself as this? And so they got this group of people who all identify as Christians and they put them in these focus groups. And they began to ask them, first of all, how, like, how would you describe God? What is God like? And then people would either, usually on some sort of spectrum, they would either begin to answer the question of, I believe that God is, um, is a divine judge. I believe that God is like watching what we do. I believe that God is keeping a record of all of our wrongs. That There's a lot of language about like, I believe that we're all sinners and that we're all broken and that without God we would, and that God like, is angry at us, but Jesus saves us from God's anger. There's a lot of language like that. And then there were, there, on the other end of the spectrum, there was, I believe that God is love. I believe that we are supposed to like serve other people. I believe that we're called to um, be, be loving examples of generous people in the world. So there were these two spectrums of like, God is angry, God is hostile. We are sinners, like ready to burn and God is love. Like these, these were the two ends of the, of the continuum. And again, like there were all sorts of like spaces in between, but those are the two poles. And then what they began asking after that was talk about the, talk about the kinds of um, candidates that you would like to vote for and talk about like, what, what are your voting habits and what are the, what are the, what are the traits that you find in the candidates that you most prefer? And the candidates who said, or, and the people who, who describe God as like harsh, angry, judgmental, um, ready to punish almost always described political candidates who also fit that description. And then, and the same was true on the other end. So like you find, you find that people, what, what ends up happening is that people have these ideas about who God is and those ideas about who God is begin to translate into how they view everybody else and how they, what, how they expect everybody else to behave. So David Dark in his book, Sacredness of Questioning Everything says, yeah, you show me all the things that you believe and I'll tell you exactly what your God is like. And, or you show me all the things that you do say and your behaviors, and that is very possibly how your God is also. So the story of Abraham is this really interesting subversive story that tells you like, oh, okay, in this system, everybody else has have these gods who are very violent and harsh and punishing, and Abraham is a part of a story about a God who says, no, 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 I'll provide the sacrifice. So this is what we mean when we talk about toxic faith. We're talking about systems of belief that are actually harmful to people, that actually strip us of parts of ourselves. Look at the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. In Hebrews 13, um, verse 15. And the book of Hebrews, presumably, was written to a group of people who are fully aware of these ancient sacrificial systems and um, the story of Abraham. In fact, there are lots of references to Abraham in the book of Hebrews. So towards the end of the book of Hebrews, this writer says this in verse 15. This writer says, though Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So there have been references all through the book of Hebrews about Abraham and about other like people who lived during a sacrificial system. And then towards the end of the book of Hebrews, what, what does it say? It says, do not forget to do, to do good 
to share with others for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. What kinds of sacrifices does this God ask us to do? Good, to, to serve others, to show grace and peace and love. What, what, what are the sacrifices that we are actually invited to participate in? The kinds of sacrifices that make other people's lives better, that actually bring more life and joy and healing into the world. There's a new kind of sacrifice that is required of us, and it's serve one another and love one another. If my faith, if my faith is dangerous to somebody else, if my belief in a specific God or a set of ideas causes other people to be afraid of me, then it needs to go. If my faith marginalizes women, it needs to go. If my faith brings harm to people who are gay or trans, then it needs to go. If my faith allows me to minimize the pain felt by people of color in this country, then it needs to go. If my faith causes me to prioritize being right and correct over showing love and compassion and hospitality, then it needs to go. If my, if my gods had made me a harsh, violent, uncaring, unloving person, if, if, if my gods have, have given me permission to take that posture, then perhaps I'm sacrificing something on the altar of gods who don't need to be sacrificed to. Perhaps instead we're invited to point our attention and our love towards a God who says, listen, I'll provide the sacrifice. Here's what I'm asking for you. Show love, offer hospitality, offer grace, be generous. Those are the kinds of sacrifices we're doing now. All the other things that people say are required of you, those are other gods. That's not what we're doing here. So may we be the kinds of people who hear the words of a God who says, I will provide the sacrifice. And may our sacrifice be a sacrifice of grace and love and humility and hospitality. And may we stop serving the gods that strip us of who we are and our humanity. May we stop serving the gods that cost us the ability to love other people. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for inviting us into a story <clears throat> about a God who provides the sacrifice. And may we, set, be, may we be set free from all the systems that require more from us than you would have us offer. And may we instead offer the sacrifices of love and grace and generosity to one another. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.